All right. Well, welcome back to another episode of The Shadows of Jesus, where we are walking through the whole Bible um, and showing how it all points to Jesus. Uh, my name is Jeff Martin. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer. And today I'm joined by a special guest. Carter Wine. And Carter, where where do you typically sit during podcast? Typically behind the camera with my computer recording audio and the video. Yeah. And so now you're in front of the camera and glad you're here. So yeah, glad to be here. Yeah. Today we're going to we're going to talk about Joshua. And so um, before we jump into all this stuff, why don't you just read for us chapter one, verses five through nine, um, and we'll, we'll set it up from there and go, we'll go from there. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Yeah. So chapter 1 begins, you know, Moses has died. Joshua is now taking the lead and they're about to go into the promised land and they're going to have to conquer nations. But instead of being fearful, he, he has this refrain. He keeps saying, be strong and courageous. Yeah. Be strong and courageous. And so, I, and there's this call to obedience, this call to faithfulness to God. And so when I think about, you know, if, if he has this war tent um, and a big table and all of his generals and commanders around this table, you might think there's a map of the land, this nation's here, this group's here, and here's how we're going to flank. And and the, really the strategy is more so let's be faithful to God. And if we're faithful to God, he'll take care of the battle plans. And so there's really this call to faithfulness as we get ready to to move. And so there's a big emphasis on on following and obeying God's command where the forefathers didn't. Right. Um, any, any, any other thoughts on chapter one as we get kick off on that? Yeah, I think it's just really interesting the way that the people are united. And God tells Joshua to be strong and courageous. Joshua relates that to the people, and the people say it back to him. Be strong and courageous. And so you see this union between God and his people. And it's and as we read this book, we're like, wow. It's kind of, in some ways, maybe a little bit amazing what we can do when we're united with God. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting as, you, as you're saying that I'm thinking about how a lot of times we, we take Bible stories and we make them individualistic. And so the call would be like, be a Joshua and look at what you can do. And really it's not about being a Joshua. It's about being a community. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that. Being partners with God and his work to restore creation. Yeah. That's good. So chapter two, um, Joshua sends out spies. We've seen this before in the Bible story. Moses sent out 12 spies, Joshua being one of them. Didn't go so well. This time he sends out spies. Um, it's kind of a crazy story. Where, where do the spies end up? They end up in the house of Rahab. And what, what's special about Rahab? <laughs> she was a prostitute. Yeah, and it's like, it's like that's where they're lodging. I'm like, this seems sketchy. Um, so many questions I don't have the answers to. Um, but what happens? While they're, while they're there, what happens with Rahab? Yeah, so the spies show up, and they enter the town, and the town's like, hey, where'd those people go? Because they're here to spy on this whole land. Well, it turns out Rahab had taken them into her home because she knew what they were there for. And so she hid them from the people, 
and told them to wait and kept them safe. Yeah, and then she's basically saying, please just spare my family when you guys come back. So she knows that God's God on their God, side. Yeah. And, um, and so when I think about, like, here's a prostitute that both James mentions, um, Jesus' brother, the author of Hebrews mentions and calls a hero of our faith. We see her name in the genealogy of Jesus. And so I, I love that just her messy past doesn't keep her from being part of God's redemptive story. Like, I just love, as we read through scripture, we can see how God paints straight with the crooked lines of our past for his purposes. Mm-hmm. And so and so we have here is an outsider. She's not Jewish. Um, someone who would be considered unqualified um, mm-hmm. for religious type work, yet God uses her in his beautiful redemptive story. And so I love yeah. that. Um, so then chapters three and four, basically um, this is them crossing the river. And so just like the Red Sea parted and they went across on dry ground, the the river stops, the people go across, um, they make it, they make it into the promised land safely. Um, any thoughts on chapters three and four? Yeah. Um, as we see, Joshua tells them to take stones out of the river. And so they set up, and I think maybe our first inclination is just to think of like, a little rock that you carry in your pocket. Yeah. Just a little souvenir, but they're like these massive stones and they stand them up on their end. They're called stones of witness. And so they're meant to be a reminder of like what God did for his people because they don't have anything on them. They're just stones and people are like, Whoa, Hey, what are those for? So it's an invitation for um, someone to tell a story about what God has done in their lives. Yeah. That's, that's, I love that invitation. That's great. Um, I was talking to a, a contractor who said, Jeff, have you ever tried to build a, um, a stack of 12 stones? And I was like, I actually have not. And he goes, it's really hard. He goes, you need one more stone. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was like, I don't know if like these are 12 stones stacked on top of each other, like just a one pillar or were they 12 stones that were kind of like a base and then less stones, less stones. I, I Googled around and couldn't find anything. Yeah. There's, there are some pictures that I've seen and they're just like one big, huge rock. That stands up and there's a whole row of a whole them. row of them. Yeah, I saw some pictures like that as well. So um don't remember seeing that anything like that when I was in Israel. So maybe I missed out on something. Yeah. So well, chapter five, um, Israel is in the land, but there's one problem. There's idolatry from the people that are there yeah. everywhere. People there's are all these other nations live there, and these people are messed up morally, they're jacked up. Um, they're evil people. Um, and so the sword of Israel is about to be aimed at these nations. They're going to conquer them. But before the sword is aimed at these other nations, it's kind of aimed at themselves mm-hmm. because they're about to get circumcised. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so all the guys have to get circumcised, which means that for 40 years in the desert, what were their parents doing? Not following the covenant. Yeah, so they're not following the covenant. So, like, so their parents, like, were they were they doing anything they were supposed to be doing? And um, and so now they're going to get circumcised, and it's really it's one, it's a commitment. You know, the circumcision is a picture of something being cut off. Um, so, so basically saying like, if I break my end of the covenant, may I be cut off from you? Um, so there's one hand, they're re-upping their their covenant faithfulness to God, but on the other hand, they're they're literally leaving behind a picture of their parents. Mm-hmm. unfaithfulness or their parents' disobedience saying we're, we're going to be different than our yeah. parents were. It seems like a small repeat of the story of Abraham. Yeah, it's good. And um, at this point, the manna dries up. So that for 40 years, they've been eating cheap bread, maybe some quail mixed in there. Yeah. And at this point, 
it dries up. They've observed the Passover. There's no more manna. And what are they going to get to eat for the first time ever? Pretty much whatever they want. Um, that's kosher. They get fruits and fresh food. Yeah, I was trying to, I was trying to think through like what are the type of food that that naturally grows in this land. So you'd, you'd have olives, avocados, bananas, um, pomegranates, cherries, grapes. Like for the first time, biting into this stuff and only yeah. like I bet it was a glorious moment. Oh yeah, stuff you could only dream of. I mean, I don't, I have no comprehension for that. Yeah, it's like for their entire life they ate bread, and then <laughs> now they get to eat whatever. Yeah. Um, and so after this, there's a kind of a strange encounter where Joshua sees a guy. What, what, what's unique about this dude? Um, well, he just kind of shows up and he has a sword drawn. And then Joshua asks him, are you for us or against us? And he says, neither. I am for the Lord. You're on holy ground. Take off your shoes. Yeah, he's like, he's like I'm for the Lord. And by the way, you're on holy ground. Take off your shoes, kind of like Moses at the burning bush. Yeah. And then Joshua falls on his face in worship. And so the, the question that people have is, is this a theophany? If, if, you, if you hear that term for the first time, what, what's a theophany? Well, as I've learned recently, it is a pre-incarnate Christ. So Jesus showing up before he was Jesus in the flesh. Yeah. And so like incarnate, I think carne, like I love Mexican food, carne asada. It's like meat. And uh, it's just like before Jesus took on his humanity showing up. And so sometimes when you see not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord, people will say that's a theophany. Seems like there's some, sometimes it might be. Um, I know like, so if it's an angel, it's not Gabriel because Gabriel's the messenger. We see him providing the message to, to like Mary, that she's going to have a kid. But we also see another angel by name who's Name is Michael, and what's what is Michael? He's the the warrior. The warrior. The so maybe this is the archangel Michael, the warrior angel, or maybe it is Jesus. I don't, I don't know. know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It seems like um, some study Bibles I have that you have are like mm-hmm. it's Jesus. I'm like, yeah. so maybe maybe it's Jesus. Maybe um, we'll come back to this in the shadows of Jesus. Um, but chapter six and seven, this is probably the most familiar story in the book. This is where you know the children's Bibles, Veggie Tales. We're gonna highlight it. It's the Battle of Jericho. Did yeah. you ever did you ever sing that song as a kid? Oh yeah. Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. 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 Yeah. So um, and the walls come tumbling down. Yep. And so yeah, so we we kind of typically stop there. It's like, and they won and everything happened. But as we keep reading, it gets bloody and nasty. So we're gonna get back to that with the questions because we it's a Bible story up until like verse 15, then things take a turn. Yeah. Not as friendly for kids. No. Um, but basically Jericho is this, this giant type city. It would be like a, if Israel was a middle school wrestler, it'd be like fighting a professional fighter. And so they have no business winning, but they win because God's on their side. We get to chapter seven and they're going to fight this, this little nation. So all of a sudden it's like now Israel seems like the professional fighter. And, right. and I, if that's how you pronounce AI, um, I looks like the middle schooler. Yeah. And they lose. Why do they lose? Well, they even prep like it's just a little middle school fight. They're like, oh, yeah, we can send a couple thousand people. Yeah, we got this. Um, but then we get a little behind the scenes peek when at Jericho, God had told the people to destroy everything or to consecrate everything um, to him, to give it to him and not take any of the spoils. We get the behind the scenes look and see that Achan had taken um, some gold 
or some idols and some silver and kept it in his tent. Yeah. So you have one guy who has hidden sin and it affects the whole camp. Um, and I think there's, there's two big lessons for me to take from this. One is just practically, we become so individualistic in our sin. Like it's not hurting anybody else. It's just me. And so it's not that big of a deal, but to realize that your secret sin that's hidden within the church can affect others, whether you can see it or not. And so to, to take our sin seriously, not just for ourselves, but also for the, the unseen harm, it could be har- causing the rest of the church. But this also introduces to us with that communal aspect, one person's person's sin affecting the whole introduces a, to us this theological term called imputation. And uh, it's like an accounting term, you know, like a cre- crediting someone. And so, and so this is like Adam imputes to us a sin nature. So because of Adam, we, we inherit a sin nature. It's like, well, I didn't do anything. Um, well, we have, but like, but we are born with mm-hmm. it, which is bad. And it might seem unfair for us to go like, that's not fair that like we would inherit or have something imputed to us. Like someone else's sin is affecting me, but it becomes beautiful when we get to Christ. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans five. It's like in the same way that we were imputed the sin nature from Adam, Christ imputes to us his righteousness. So we didn't earn it, but Jesus gives us what he earned. And so you have this, 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 theological concept of imputation that we see introduced with, with Aiken. Um, anything else in chapter six and seven before we move on? I think so. All right. So chapters eight and 12, eight through 12, Aiken's sin is dealt with. They're back to fighting. Um, but one nation, like they, they're destroying everybody. Right. And so other nations are like, we need to create an alliance. I don't like you. You don't like me, but if we team up, maybe we can stop Israel. Enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah. Enemy. That's a great line. And so, one nation figures out a go around. Like they, they're like, we're going to get conquered. And so instead of creating an alliance and even giving it a shot, what is the, what is, what do the Gibeonites do? Yeah. They pull this elaborate ruse together and they show up to the camp and they're like, we've come from so far. We don't live next to you. And the Israelites are, are you sure you don't live next to us? And they're like, no, we came from far away. Look at this bread. It was warm when we put it away and now it's all moldy and dry and our wineskins have split and we've stitched them back together. They like, they put on some old shoes that are all worn out and they're like, these were new when we left. Look how worn out they are. So they're like, we're not your neighbors. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We came from a far off land. And so they're like, just make a covenant with us that you won't destroy us. And instead of consulting anybody, talking to God, they're like, okay, let's make a covenant. And then turns out they were part of the Canaanites. They were part of this new land. And, um, and they should have been destroyed. What's interesting is, is it seems like they might've kind of gotten around God fulfilling his promise here. Mm-hmm. But if you go back to Genesis chapter nine and 15, um, we see that there are people from this land were meant to be slaves. God's like, they will be enslaved to you. Um, and now we're seeing that being fulfilled. So their deception causes them to be slaves. Now they're going to be chopping wood and carrying water. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're fulfilling what God already said would happen in Genesis 15. So yes, they were deceptive, but they ultimately still play into God's yeah. plan. And it's interesting that it shows what kind of a different nation Israel is, that Joshua as their leader is a different kind of leader, that while, yes, he still does some things like the leaders around them, he's also the kind of leader that does the right thing in some cases. So in this way, he's honoring the oath that they've made, even though they probably shouldn't have made that oath, but he's going to hold to it because they hold to their word. Yeah. That always kind of reminds me of, um, when, when Jacob deceives Isaac, like why couldn't Isaac just be like, dude, you lied to me. Like 
no, Esau gets the gets the mm-hmm. inheritance. It's like there's this something like he's he's reflecting that like I'm gonna keep my word even if it was wrong what they did to me. I'm gonna I'm gonna be the bigger or the better person. Mm-hmm. So chapters 13 through 21. I'll be honest, this was hard for me to get through. I I I did it more out of discipline than like I'm getting so much out of this. Yeah. But I some, might have skimmed through it. Yeah. I might have skipped it entirely. <laughs> but chapter 18.1 really stood out to me. Um, read, read chapter 18, verse 1 real quick. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. So that word subdued stuck out to me. Like where else do we see or where else have we seen that word subdued? In Genesis 1, in the creation story. Yeah, so in the creation story, there's this idea of subduing something. And so in the same way that God took chaos and brought order during creation for Adam and Eve to inhabit the garden, now God has taken the chaos of the promised land mm-hmm. and he's bringing order so Israel can inhabit it. Um, and so like with this, I'll come back to this. So you had some interesting insight on on the the lot, the dividing up the land that I thought was really good. So why don't you share that with us yeah. real quick? Um, so common, this area is commonly referred to as the crossroads of the earth because that's where everything goes through. The Egyptians to trade, they go through Israel. The Syrians, the Babylonians, they go through Israel. Rome will go through Israel. It all connects to this one place. And so as we see these, these land allotments, we see that God is putting his people exactly where he wants them to be to do the job that he's given them. And so he wants a partner in bringing order back to chaos. And so we see these people partnering in this way so that they can affect the people around them. Yeah. As you're sharing that, it just was such a great reminder to know like God has placed us where we need to be. Yeah. You know, and so instead of like always being discontent, looking for what's next about being present where we are, because it's part of God's design mm-hmm. to have us exactly where we should be. Yeah. Um, another thing that stood out to me as I was reading those chapters was uh, a few times it's like they didn't totally conquer people mm-hmm. and they didn't completely move them out. So there's this remnant of, of, I would say evil mm-hmm. in the camp. And so if this is the new garden um, and in the garden, you have the serpent it's like, well, what Adam should have done is kick the serpent out like right. a talking snake. Um, can't be mm-hmm. here. Um, maybe maybe animals were talking at that point in creation. Maybe, maybe it wasn't abnormal. Yeah, but, I'd like um, to think so. Yeah. Chronicles of Narnia. So, um, yeah. But he leaves the Satan in the garden, doesn't kick him out. And because of that, everything goes south. And so this is almost foreshadowing for us the fact that they're leaving a remnant of evil mm-hmm. and not fully eradicating it that that things will go south for them as well um, because of their, they're not fully obedient. But the big thing in this is that as we see God divide up the land is that God's promises don't fail. So chapters 22 through 24, um, the first part of chapter 22, there there are three tribes who didn't want to go to the land. They're like, we kind of like this here over here. Mm -hmm. Um, Moses, can we have this land? And, And Moses is like, sure. But you're going to have to cross the Jordan and fight for us. And once we fight and win, you can go back. So now like it, they have rest from war. And these two and a half tribes, I yeah. guess, are like, can we go back? Mm-hmm. And so they go back. And what do they what do? They do? Um, as soon as they get back, they erect an altar. And Israel sees that. And they're like, they're worshiping another god. This yeah. is bad. So they're mad. Mm-hmm. And then they, they have a conversation yeah. and figure out, so what's actually happening here? 
Yeah, so, you know, Israel comes in, the rest of Israel comes in, and they're kind of treating it like Achan again, right? It's like he did something, and now they're like, we're going to be in the same place again. If we don't, if we're not allied with God, then we'll lose all of this. And then it's revealed that they did it to set as like, a, we wanted these tribes were two and a half tribes were like, we wanted to make sure that this situation wouldn't happen. Yeah. Um, that we are following God, that we are a part of the promise that you can't just look at us and say that we're not a part of it anymore. Yeah. That's great. So then after this, um, Joshua kind of commissions the people one last time to faithfulness. And he basically says like, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, which is a great lifeway plaque to put on your mm-hmm. counter or wall or I think I've seen door. it in a few houses. Yeah, I've seen it. Um, Joshua dies, and which is interesting though, is is Moses raised up Joshua um, as a leader, and Joshua's done such a good job. He's been he's been a model leader, except like who did he raise up? We don't know. It seems like maybe that's one of his flaws. Yeah. He doesn't raise up his replacement, which kind of lends us to believe that maybe there's some drama um, to come, which maybe we'll see maybe in, ju- in judges. All right. So w- what we like to do is, is wrestle with some of the big questions people have. And I know there's some questions, some smaller questions within, within Joshua, but the major one that, that I've heard is like, is God a moral monster? Like how do we reconcile this language of total destruction? I mean, we're talking livestock, men, women. I mean, like, is God, I've heard some people accuse God of being, you know, of, of advocating for genocide, like mm-hmm. wiping out total ethnic groups. And so this is a tough question. Like, is God a moral monster? Is he condoning or advocating for, for evil things like genocide? Um, it's a hard question. And I wish there was a neat box yeah, that it could just fit in like, oh, that makes me feel warm and fuzzy. I don't have a neat box, mm-hmm. but I think we can at least take, take some stabs at it. So one thing is whenever we, we read scripture, um, we don't want to read scripture literally. We want to read it literarily. So if the Psalm talks about like the oceans clapping their hands, we don't really believe like that's literal, like there's hands clapping. It's, it's, it's poetic. So, right. you, so you have yeah. prose, you have poetry, you have apocalyptic literature. Um, and so, so we want to read within the literary context. So in the ancient Near Eastern um, war language. Do you think that this is literal or her or hyperbole? Hyperbole. It seems to lean heavily towards hyperbole, considering that a lot of nations would embellish on their victories. Right, the victor writes history. Yeah, and so they can tell whatever story they want. It seems so within the the literary genre of ancient Near Eastern war language. Like even if the margin of victory was severely small, they would still use language of like totality. Yeah, I mean, um, I even think of uh, Israel running from AI or however you pronounce it. Yeah, they probably took that and ran with it because the people of Israel were worried that that would get back to the other nations and then they would be wiped out. Yeah, and so it's interesting is we see this language of total destruction mentioned like in Deuteronomy seven, and so Deuteronomy seven, Israel is first told to drive out the Canaanites. Then they're told to utterly destroy them. And so after that, like they, if they fulfilled that, there'd be no Canaanites left. But then a little bit later, it says, don't intermarry with Canaanites. Don't do business with them. Um, <laughs> and so the big thing is like, you can't marry or do business with someone who's been totally destroyed. So it seems like that would be embellished 
type language. So if it fits to me, I, I would say it, it, it seems to be hyperbole, but still that that's the way that Joshua chose the language Joshua chose to write. Um, a couple other notes. One is like the, the ethnic part. Is this, is this an ethnic cleansing? Is this genocide in that mm-hmm. sense? Um, and so it's interesting is if, as you read in Genesis 15 verses 18 through 21, um, why don't you read that for us real quick? Sure. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Riphraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And so this is the land that they're now conquering. These are the nations that kind of fill, the kingdoms that fill the land. And um, what's interesting is, when you look at scripture, you see that Moses's father-in-law was a Kenite. Um, Caleb, one of the other good spies, he was a Kenizzite. Uriah, one of David's mighty men, was a Hittite. Abraham, he was a Canaanite. Mm-hmm. And so this isn't about their ethnicity. It's about their evil. And mm-hmm. so um, this culture was, like I said, so morally corrupt. And... Um, I was listening to to a guy talk about the statues of Baal they would have, where they would have, have like basically the hands extended, and then the belly would be like a furnace, mm-hmm. and that they would take babies um, to sacrifice to their false gods. They would put them on the the hands, which would be searing hot because of the heat from the belly and the metal extending up. So so you have the sear, um, and so then a baby would scream and cry from that pain. And but mm-hmm. then what would happen is it would slowly the child would slowly slide down the hands, down the arms into the furnace and be burned to death. Mm -hmm. And so what's interesting is, is in this land, they found Canaanite graveyards with tens of thousands of infant corpses. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're practicing just unspeakable evil things. Yeah. I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, they even considered the cries of the baby to be the laughter of Baal. Yeah. That's, that's messed up. Yeah. And then like on the other side of things, you also have these fertility cults, and so people, there's like all this sexual immorality going on too. Yeah. In the midst of all of this. Um, potentially cannibalism. I mean, like yeah. just messed up stuff. And so in Genesis 15, 14, God actually says that like he's going to judge this nation. Mm-hmm. Um, so Genesis 15 is 450 years before this. Yeah. So we're talking 450 years of cult practices, of Baal worship, of of tens and of thousands of, of kids crying, mm-hmm. um, being burned alive. And it seems like after 450 years, God finally says enough. Like I've, I've heard enough kids cry. I want it destroyed. Mm-hmm. Like I, I want it all destroyed. And, um, and all of a sudden I think we are like, well, yeah, I'd want that destroyed too. But now it kind of introduces a new question. Why did he wait so long? Yeah, why did he, like, why would God wait 450 years to do this? And so we're caught in this tension of the two whys, mm-hmm. right? Like, why destroy, like, people? Why wait? And, yeah. um, and so, Carter, do you have the decision to make to make that call on? Yeah, absolutely not. I don't, I, I can't even imagine, like, trying to make that kind of decision. Yeah, so we, we find ourselves, there's not a neat package answer for this question, but we find ourselves with saying, God, like, only you have the wisdom to know when to be patient and when to say enough. Um, so I, I don't know if that, if that helps with the question, but that's, that's, that's the best stab I've got. 
Yeah. Any other any other thoughts on that question from you? Yeah, I I think it's just another one of those times where we're invited into a somewhat messy narrative to trust the narrative that God is telling. And it's not, and there are a lot of things that aren't going to be neatly packaged. And I think that kind of reflects like our lives in general. Like I think we wish that our lives were neatly packaged and tied up with a bow, but we have some really hard stuff to wrestle with. Yeah. And so it's interesting is like, this is obviously a troubling question. Um, but one of the things that that's common in biblical literature is this term called a chiasm. Mm-hmm. And so you, you see it kind of throughout scripture, um, both old and new Testament. And so if, if you're taking poetry in high school and you have like line a line B line C line B line a, it's like, there's like this poetic flow. Mm-hmm. And so, but typically that, that central piece is like the main focus. So when we get to the book of Esther, we'll see like the, if you follow the chiasm, like mm-hmm. the literally the center hinge point of the book is like the king couldn't sleep. Mm-hmm. It's like, what's so important about that? Yeah. Do you, do you know off the top of your head, do you know what the chiastic central piece of Joshua is? If I remember correctly, it's proposed that it would be um, talking about um, no other city or nation except for the Gibeonites formed huh. an oath and everybody else was destroyed. Yeah. And so it's really, I think for like a literary point, that's really odd to me. Yeah. But I don't know much more about that. I think yeah, I just I was, heard that one thing. I was proposed. reading that it, it, it focuses in on the fact that, that God saves. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, it's like, yes, like there's some messed up stuff, but like but the central point of Joshua is ultimately like God's faithful to his promises mm-hmm. and he saves. But yeah, he's a different God than yeah. all. He's, he's not Baal, right? He doesn't ask for child sacrifice. He's a different kind of God that values life, even yeah. in the midst of wiping out evil. Yeah. So shadows of Jesus, we see Joshua as a Jesus type. What's really interesting is, is Jesus is literally means Joshua, like, like mm-hmm. so Yeshua. And so, so he's a better Joshua, but we see some shadows of Jesus. I mean, I think whether the angel in chapter five is, or the, the man with the sword in chapter five is Jesus or Michael or someone else. The question he asks is, are you for us? And I think this foreshadows Jesus because for that question that Joshua asks, if we ask, if we look to God, like, God, are you for us? Um, the cross says yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the cross, we see that God is for us, that he made a way for us to be right with him. There's nothing we could do to save ourselves, but he did the work for us. So, so I think we see a shadow of Jesus in the answer to, are you for us? Jesus at the cross says yes. Um, I love how the ESV gospel transformation Bible connects Achan to Jesus. It says Achan representing the people deserved to be killed for his sins. Jesus representing his people did not. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. In both cases, we sense both the seriousness of sin and the links to which God will go to preserve his people from sins, contagion and corruption. Both Achan and Jesus were executed to turn away God's wrath, but in a breathtaking act of substitution, we sinners, deserving the fate of Achan, are freely forgiven and welcomed into God's family because Jesus, our representative head, has paid for our sins. Um, Anything else that you see, like shadows of Jesus? I don't think so. It seems like there's there's so much going on in this book that some, I think for me, like wrestling with this text, it's sometimes hard to see. Like,
some hope in it. Yeah. But there's always hope. Yeah. And so I, I kind of jumped the gun on the chiasm talk. <laughs> this, this, <laughs> this central part yeah. is like we see Jesus and the fact that the Gibeonites didn't deserve to be saved. Mm-hmm. Yet Joshua saves the undeserving. And so kind of, the, I, I think that's like the central point of Joshua. Like if you follow the chiastic structure, the centerpiece yeah. is God saves the undeserving. And so we see that, like we experienced that through Christ. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that, that's what it was. Okay. <laughs> so we were together, <laughs> Just a little head. together we yeah. can get there. And uh, yeah, but Joshua's a great conquering warrior. Jesus is the true and perfect warrior. I mean, I love Colossians 2.15. He, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them. Um, yeah, so a lot of good stuff in Joshua, but next up we've got judges and Ruth. Mm-hmm. So judges, um, let me just set that up real quick. Chapters one and two kind of show the roots of Israel's apostasy. Um, what does, what does apostasy mean? So walking away from the faith, right? Yeah. Yeah. So basically they're walking away from God. So they're not, they're not pursuing God. And so, um, there's this kind of pattern that we're going to see. And it's cyclical, it just happens again mm-hmm. and again and again. And so Israel does what's evil in the sight of the Lord. God allows them to be conquered. Then what do the people do? They cry out. They cry out. And then what does God do? He saves them. Saves them. We see that over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So chapters 3 through 16, it highlights this repeated cycle and shows this continual downward spiral of Israel. But in these narratives, like we see a lot of stuff. Like we see the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm-hmm. Like, And there, these are... These are heroic stories. Like there's, there's like, who's like any heroes stand out? Yeah, of course you have Deborah and Gideon and Samson. Samson. But then also like there's, there's some just messed up stuff. I mean, like you get a fat guy with a sword stuck in him. You mm-hmm. got a peg driven through someone's head. Yeah. Um, and so there's accounts of violence, sexual abuse, idolatry, the misuse of power. So there's some juicy stuff. Well, you even see some things repeated, right? You see the, the Benjamites becoming like Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. Um, doing the same things that they wanted to do to the yeah. angels. So, yeah. And then in chapter 17 to 21, the, the book wraps up just driving home just how corrupt the nation of Israel has become. So I'm looking forward to talking about that next week. Yeah. I think if there was anything I wanted to do, I'd want to challenge people to consider outside of seeing the sin repeated to also look and see how incredibly patient and forgiving God is because he comes in every time yeah, and he changes the narrative every time. And so in even within our own persistence of committing evil, God is still there ready to redeem us when we call. That's really good. So yeah. So as you read, pay attention, not just to the cycle, but to the patience of God. Um, and so then, then also we're going to get into Ruth. So that we're kind of, now we're starting into this weird transition where we're not just going to cover one book. We're going to be covering multiple books. So mm-hmm. it'll get tricky, but there's an introduction to Ruth where we meet Naomi. And so basically she's, she's married, there's famine in the land. So they leave Bethlehem, go to Moab, an evil place to them. And, um, to try to survive, they bring two sons with them. Their sons marry Moabite wives. Then basically every man in Naomi's life dies. Like mm-hmm. her husband dies, her sons die. She's got two daughter-in-laws that don't have husbands that are Moabite women. Mm-hmm. And then they travel back. And so there's, after the introduction, there's four scenes. So scene one, Naomi comes back to Bethlehem with Ruth, who's decided to stay with her. Scene two, Ruth goes out to a field to glean. Do you know what gleaning is? It's just uh, picking up the leftover wheat. 
That's when we read, when we were going through Deuteronomy, like they weren't supposed, if stuff, when they were harvesting their crops, if stuff fell, they weren't supposed to go back and completely sweep Mm -hmm. it all up there to leave some for the sojourn and the poor. And so, so Ruth takes advantage of God's law. She's gleaning and a particular guy owns the field. Boaz. Mm-hmm. Um, so scene three, Ruth's like, will you marry me? Right. There's maybe some sketchy language there with her being yeah. at his feet. Um, and then in chapter four, Boaz redeems her. I love that idea of redemption. And so we'll explain that next week. And the, the book concludes with Naomi having a new family and we'll see how she ties in to Jesus. So, so we'll be hitting up judges and Ruth and we'll dive into those next week. Yeah. Yeah. Carter. You have to come back. Yeah, I'm sure I will. All right, this is good. Well, hey, we'll see you guys next week as we wrap up um, or jump into two, two new books. So thanks for hanging with us. 